flight from sorrow leads to the loss of hope. So that's kind of where it, it started mm. for me, is like understanding that, but also seeing my own life as, as I addressed my own tragedies and my own mm -hmm. traumas and grieved them, not just address them, but grieve them. Yeah. There was comfort in grief. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. All right, friends, this episode was extremely special for me. Lindsay and I got to sit down with the incredible Al Andrews. Al is a therapist and founder and executive director of Porter's Call, a nonprofit in Franklin, Tennessee, that offers free counsel, support, and encouragement to recording artists and those in the music industry. To be in Al's presence was one of the greatest experiences. As I'm sure you'll quickly gather from this interview, he is someone who carries peace, authenticity, and presence in such a special way. He joined us for a beautiful conversation all about grief and sorrow and their connection to hope. Beyond that, we got him to share a little bit about his love story and how the timing of meeting his wife aligned in ways that he never could have imagined. It was honestly an encouragement to all of us when we're in the midst of waiting and deferred hope seasons. And a bit later in the episode, he and I made a beautiful connection when he referenced a talk that he gave almost a decade ago that was absolutely life transformational for me and in my journey. And lastly, I asked him to bring a poem and he ends our interview with the most beautiful poem that fits so nicely into what we were talking about throughout the interview. So I can't wait for you to meet my new friend, Al Andrews. So excited to have Al Andrews here today. And I was thinking this morning, I, when I think of you, I just think of Nashville. Like you feel really? so <laughs> synonymous with Nashville for me. Like you're, everyone knows you. Really? Yes. And I think <laughs> well, so highly you. of you. And mm -hmm. it made me think, I was like, was Al born in Nashville? Has he always been Nashville or did he find his way here? And I was like, I don't really know your story of how you ended up. Well. Right in the middle of things in Nashville. <laughs> well, well, I married someone from Nashville. That's the start. My wife, Nita, grew up here. She's actually an original Nashvillian. Very few I, of those. Well, I think yeah. there probably aren't. But um, so we met uh, and married, and we were in Colorado for a while. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we realized we needed to get back near aging parents. My parents were in North Carolina, and her mm -hmm. mother was here. And so we just decided to move back this way. And that was 1997. Wow. We had two little boys, a <laughs> one-year-old and a four-year-old. And I was a lot younger as well. <laughs> and um, she had a job at a church, uh, Christ Community Church, counseling. And I started a private practice in Green Hills. And that would have been 97. Yeah, and wow. did that for a couple of years. Then, uh, just continue yeah, on, just keep on yeah. brings me here. So I think it was about a year in, mm -hmm. and I built up a clientele, and I, I kind of pulled back and looked at my clientele, and it was 97% music. Literally, I looked at my clientele, and it was like, 
a drummer, a keyboard player, a backup singer, an artist, a tour manager, an executive. It's crazy. And um, I was just looking at it and going, huh, that's interesting. And I just kept watching it, and, and, and it was more. And I think what happened was the first few people I saw were in the music industry. Mm-hmm. And there's this network, and yeah. they tell people. And word so, just got out. Yeah, word got out, I guess. <laughs> I'm not sure what the word was, but filled up with music. And then um, I, I noticed that when touring artists were coming in, mm-hmm. there were some themes that I saw developing. And one of the themes was uh, many couldn't afford me. They couldn't come regularly. Yeah. When, when I went to counseling, I went every Tuesday at 11. Yeah. And I've never met an artist that could come every Tuesday at 11. Um, and and then I, I started thinking about the kinds of things they were struggling with. Yeah. Everybody really struggles with the same things, but it just seems a little ramped up for artists. I'm not sure why. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, this whole thing of who people perceive me to be mm-hmm. and who I know I am. And am I going to bridge that distance yeah. or believe one or the other? The the impact of too much money, uh, the impact of not enough money. Yeah. And I'm not sure which is worse or more difficult, actually. Right. And, and, and then I realized that because they couldn't come regularly, they, you know, they just can't. Yeah. Um, schedules or touring or whatever. I didn't feel like we were getting anything rolling. You know, it was just like... We'd get going and then stop and stop. And so it felt like there were impediments to what I was doing. So I had this little entrepreneurial idea that I would go to five labels and just ask each of them to buy a day of my counseling practice. Mm -hmm. And then they could see, I could see their artists for free. On that day. Yeah. There you go. So I went to one uh, because I knew the president of it. Uh, It was Peter York at uh, Sparrow Records at that time. It was EMI Christian. Mm -hmm. And um, I gave him a little spiel, which was, (laughs) you guys are spending millions of dollars to get people out there and successful. Yeah. And we're all watching them crash and burn. That year, a lot of people crashed and burned from different things. And when that happens, everybody loses. Yeah. The record company loses. The artist loses. In that case, the reputation of the faith loses. Yeah. Would you be interested in spending some money on their hearts and souls? And he said yes, mm. which threw me because I had no business plan. <laughs> but anyway, it began to grow from there. We did it for three months as a test, and then it kept going. And so that was 21 years ago. And that was the beginning of Porter's Call. That was the beginning of Porter's Call, but also the beginning of me connecting with all things music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then other people joined in and yeah. started supporting us. and. Here we are. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's amazing. And mm-hmm. I know so many people personally that have benefited from mm-hmm. Porter's Call. I think that it is just known as such a refuge and a place of healing for so many people. I'm so glad that's the word on the streets because it feels true to me. And to know that it's true to a lot of other people is good. We want it to be a, a place of refuge. We want it to be a safe place for people to come where we obviously can't speak of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we have no reason to tell their stories because we can't. It's yeah. unethical. Yeah. And it would also 
completely ruin our reputation if we spoke. Right. And so I'm glad to know it feels like a new generation, obviously, is coming now than when mm-hmm. I started 21 years ago. And it's great to see. Yeah. It, it, they speak of you. It's sort of similar yes. to on-site, you know, where you hear of people that have had an experience and they can't wait to share uh, about the positive impact it's had on your, their life. And mm-hmm. so I think it, it's neat to see the change in the industry where the normalization of talking about seeing therapists yeah. and needing emotional health resources all the time. Oh, it, it's quite a change. I remember when I first started it, people would not tell people they came to see me. Mm. It was like, because there must be something wrong with me <laughs> if I go to counseling. And it was almost metaphorically, people would put a bag over their head, come in and go out. And if someone wrote us a recommendation, it would be anonymous mm. way back then. And now people are standing on stage going, I've been divorced, which yes. was, it's just such, such a, a shift. Like, no, we know this is important. And even the industry itself. Mm-hmm. We don't call ourselves a charity. We call ourselves an investment Mm. for people who want their artists to be healthy. Yeah. But it's, it really, you're right. It is so different. People are like, yeah, I go, you should go to counseling. What other changes have you seen over the last couple decades around musicians and how their lifestyle, you know, like. Wow. You know, that's that's the main change is openness to coming. Yeah. But I think the onset of social media, mm-hmm. which sounds so basic to say these days, but. Um, it's true. The, the, it's true. The anxiety that comes with that, the comparisons that come with that, the stress that comes with that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of like an artist's job is never done mm-hmm. anyway. You know, I've never met an artist that finished a project. They're always kind of running after it right. until somebody says, stop. It's like my wife is a visual artist. And the if she sells a painting, it always goes out wet, you know, because <laughs> she's never finished. But I think you add on top of that the mm. social media component where you look around and you see, oh, these other people are getting this or these other people are doing that. And it doesn't end. And the, the anxiety that comes with that and all that comes with that has just changed the landscape emotionally, I think, of people. And there's just more to do and more to talk about and more stress, I think, is a big one. Yeah. Yeah. It's like social media is like representative, a change of like the accessibility expectation Mm -hmm. for artists. And you're like, it is unrealistic. You can be everything to everyone all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have to learn that as a very ordinary person. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the demands with fame are. Oh, yeah, because you, and I think what has increased with that is a lot of struggles with image. Yeah. Uh, Not just the traditional struggle, but you put something out there, which is always true, and people fantasize what your life is like as a result of that. Because you don't put out crap yeah. you put out the great things the great moments and the the fun pictures and water skiing and whatever and that creates a distance mm-hmm. between you and other people and i understand the need for that at some level marketing wise you don't want to go to a concert with a bunch of depressed artists you want people that are having fun yes but i think that whole image thing 
and the insecurity that comes out. I've never been on Facebook. I actually was on Facebook just for a little bit <laughs> way back when. I'm the worst when it comes to this. I'm my I'm age. Jealous. But I didn't get on it. And the reason I didn't, it's, it's almost embarrassing to say, is that I would see people on there having dinner, and I knew them all. Yeah. And I You weren't invited, invited to dinner. And I'm like, no, it began to hurt my feelings. So I can't do this. I no. can't do this because I was. And there's something about how you watch other people's lives. Yeah. And you assume they're better than yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're not. No. But there's some, I don't know who said this, but he called those people. When you see people and you assume their life is better than yours, he called them blue mountain people. Mm. And he said, what I mean by that is when you're driving towards the mountains of North Carolina or Tennessee, the mountains look blue. But when you get up close, they're not blue. (laughs) And so blue mountain people are those people you fantasize or their life is so much better than mine. Their children are amazing, much more whatever. And you realize that we're all kind of in the same boat if you get up close. So anyway. Yeah, I a little think aside there. That's a, that's a beautiful analogy. I thought you were going to call them force, which I am a force. Yeah, we call them force. I was like just waiting for the enneagram to. You know, like, oh, you know when, uh, when you talk to my wife one day, you'll you'll have a great conversation <laughs> about enneagram. She she's been studying it for about twenty years. Oh my gosh, wow. that was so fascinating. She was in on it before it got popular. Which, yeah, it's everywhere right. now. That yeah. sounds right. But I'm not going to talk about forest because. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what I was thinking when you were talking is that I assume this is a, a large problem for artists and creatives and people who live in the public eye, but also just normal people. The lines get really blurred between my private life, my public life, my personal life. Like, I think as an artist, what you're saying of the amount of access that people feel like they have to you. Yes. And then the amount of access that you feel like you have to give people. I think, yeah. I mean, that's a boundary that I, as like you're saying, Lindsay, a normal person struggle with. And so I can't imagine the heightenedness of that. Yeah. It's just, it really is ramped up. Yeah. And, and I understand the dilemma. Yes. And yet, if I could coach somebody through it yeah. one day, a long time, which I, don't, I can't really do, but I think I would say something like, um, you can't, you know, when you're on stage, particularly, mm-hmm. you can't really say, for the most part, here's, you know, let me tell you about my week. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty bad or yeah. something like that. But there may be ways to hint mm-hmm. at things um, that says, my life is real. Yeah. And what you're seeing is not. You know, it, the fame is, is such a fantasy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I see somebody on TV and they're playing this funny role. And I think they'd be a great friend. Yeah. And they might be, but good chance they're probably not. Mm-hmm. But they're playing this role. And I know if if there's an artist sometime that somehow in the middle of their show or in their show is honest. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing an artist one time, David Wilcox. Mm, so good. Um, and he was playing uh, at the Bell Court, just a mm. little concert. And there was this moment where he played this song, played this uh, kind of the first verse, then the, the middle part. And then he did this special guitar riff that was just amazing. And then he started playing the second verse, but he started singing the first verse, verse instead. And But he kept playing, and he stopped singing for a second. He said, you're not going to believe what I did. And he kept playing <laughs> while he was talking. He said, 
I was sitting there and I was, when I played that guitar riff, I started thinking, oh my gosh, who could possibly be in the room? And he started naming off Nashville musicians. And he said, I got really nervous and self-aware and I forgot what I was doing. So I started singing the first verse. I'm sorry. Here's the second verse. And he kept going. And it was the highlight to me yeah. of the concert because he didn't get all flustered and whatever he went here's what happened and to me that hints mm-hmm. of something about what what it could mean to be real in a concert or yeah but it's 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 such a big question that I would be a terrible <laughs> coach for it but, yeah but but I think it always needs to be a conversation well, I think you would be a great coach for it. Cause I think oh, about you. <laughs> you just saying that even I thought of how we started this conversation. Lindsay asked you before we started recording, how are y'all? And you said, there's a lot of really good, but we've got our stuff. Like even just starting the conversation right yeah. there, you started with authenticity of, mm. hey, my life isn't so great. This is, this is real. And there's a mixed bag of what's going on. And yeah. so, yeah, I think. Well, you know, it, authenticity is, is the word. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe Maybe I will do a coaching thing. No. <laughs> but but to me, maybe maybe the answer is to keep that conversation open. Yeah. Whether it's with your spouse or with your friends. Yeah. And to me, I remember one time asking an artist who felt like no one knew him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, who is it that does know you? And he went back to high school mm. and his young life group of guys that they, he still keeps in touch contact with and yeah. I gave him an assignment he had enough money to do this I was like you need to get together with those guys once a year yeah fly them out to your concert be with them because they don't care yeah mm-hmm. and kind of remind yourself of this is who I am and that's fine and we'll see maybe we've all three yeah. just figured out a no. new job it's funny like last I guess oh, over the week Friday night I posted on social media I have a 10 month old and so I'm home all the time at 7 I'm single and so there's not anybody home with me and my 10 month old and so I was like it I posted about like the season's just inherently lonely yeah. kind of and I was like it's not anything that friend, you know I have like got great friends I've got great family but it just is, you know, and oh, several people commented. But I, the process of like, I want to share this because I know other people are experiencing it too, and it's real. Yeah. And I'm always posting these happy, cute pictures of your baby, my baby. Yeah. I don't, but I don't want people to think that's all motherhood is, you know, for me yes. in this season. And I needed people to know the complexity of it. But I was like, I know my mom's going to call me and be like, are you okay? Oh, yeah. And I know that, you know, people are going to be like, is this like you sending up a flare? And You're going like, to get no, some DMs. Okay, but it is, <laughs> is the- it still is a little lonely. Yeah. And so it, it, it just is, it was interesting noticing for myself that I feel like I need to bring people in, like public people into this, yeah. but it, it it does feel risky and like you're shattering some people's illusions of your life a bit. I know. And yet, you know, the first time this came up for me is it was a Christmas, I want to say 10 years ago, and I was not doing well. Mm-hmm. It was kind of the Christmas season. I'm not sure exactly why now, but a little depressed and some things. I don't remember what was going on, but 
uh, I go in, I went into Meredith's, you know, to get something on, you know, sugary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something with muffin. pleasure show, sure. just to make yeah. you feel better. <laughs> Maybe it might have been a comfort uh, <laughs> strategy. But um, I was in line, and this woman who I had not seen for years said this to me. It's so good to see you. I haven't seen you in a long time. Is life treating you great? <laughs> and if I was a cartoon, you'd see this little bubble on my head. And it was like, I don't know how quickly, but my mind was spinning like, How do I answer this? Do I go, yeah, and then just get out of there? And I don't want to say something rude. Yeah. And and I just thought for a minute, and I went, what am I going to say? So I said, um, no, life's not particularly treating me great, but I'm okay. And uh, <laughs> this person looked at me. Like my dog looks at me when I talk to it. Yeah. Like he goes, I know you're saying something, but I'm going to cock my head because I don't know what it is. And she was very worried about me. She said, oh, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. But, you know, life, I don't don't know about you. Life doesn't always just treat me great. In fact, whatever. I didn't push too hard on it because I thought it might be, you know, it's the Christmas season. Like, who are you, Scrooge? But but it was an important moment for me because— up until that time, I think I just kind of went with the program. Yeah. How are you doing? Fine. And since then, I, I do have my little things. People say, how are you? And I go, in many years, I'm doing well. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, if, if, if I know them well, I go, so in, in which area do you want to know about? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it always provides a conversation, actually. Yeah. It's never like, oh, okay. But it's like, what do you mean? Well, you know, so yeah. it's, 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 so I... Do you want to know about the hard stuff? Yeah, and I'm glad you posted that because sometimes it's going to be, oh, here's this baby. It's amazing. And sometimes it's like, I'm not sure what it is, but I'm lonely now. Yeah. But but people are very uncomfortable with that answer. They are very uncomfortable. I'm not. I like it. Actually, I go, oh, tell me more. But... But people are uncomfortable, yeah. but I, and I think that's what authenticity does. Yeah. Uh, sometimes what you say is like authentic and fun. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> it's like, huh. Authentic and hard. Uh, and I want to have a conversation about it, and then it usually gets different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as someone who doesn't like to lead out with those things, I have found a lot of safety in relationships with people who lead out and saying, hey, this is what's hard for me right now. Mm-hmm. And this is how I'm feeling or this is what I'm struggling with. or Because mm-hmm. it's really permission given for mm-hmm. me because of the way that I'm wired. If we want to pull in the Enneagram, I love being a seven and I <laughs> no. am the joy bomb. And I think ah. I carry the messaging that I needed to be the joy bomb for people, right? And so I have relationships in my life where people lead out in that and give me permission to show up as all of myself. Yeah, And it's like permission giving when someone says, what area do you want to know about? This is an invitation for me to like go deeper with them, but it's also yeah. an invitation for reciprocity for me to say, hey, I can relate with that. Yeah. 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 And I will echo that your post about Halloween a couple weeks ago was really permission giving. She posted a photo of her and Ben, her son, at the zoo, and he was in his Halloween costume. And she said, These were the moments that I imagined when I was being a mom, like being a mom of like the picture perfect zoo outing. <laughs> But it was really hard. It, was like, it, was it wasn't fun. And yeah. I already have anxiety about going back next year. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is not fun. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's so funny. That's my approach to a certain uh, amusement place that has <laughs> mouse ears. Yes. Um, in that you go there and you see all these little families and kids are just screaming and parents are hot. <laughs> mm, yeah. And there, there's some fun there, too. But it's it's 
It's a mix. It's, it's fun. And it's hard. Mix. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You've mentioned Nita a couple of times. Yeah. How did y'all meet? We met, um, we both went to the same counseling school. And uh, she went first. A few years later, I went. Maybe four or five years later, I went. And one of our professors saw these two single folks <laughs> and thought they should meet. Uh, that was after I graduated. And he wrote me, a, oh, back then, he probably got a phone call or a letter. Back then, there were mm. letters. And he said, I have somebody I want you to meet. And I meet, it, it was a phone call because I said, I've had one blind date, and it was a blind date from hell. It was horrible. <laughs> I went to see this movie, and it was a very emotional movie, and I was just sobbing, and she was just sitting there. And then she <laughs> lit up a cigarette. It was just not really a good <laughs> yeah. It wasn't a great Good story. Yeah, good story. But, Bad and, I, and so I said, you know how awkward this is? Because what if we meet and we just don't like each other, and you've put all this effort in? But anyway, so finally I got over myself and thought, hmm, because I was probably when we were introduced, I was probably 34. Okay. I did not have a good history in relationships, mm-hmm. um, which is a whole other story, but yeah. I just didn't. I, there were things up until that time that I had not dealt with. And mm. when I dealt with them, things began to change. Yeah. So um, I called her up. He had told her, you know. And we talked for a little bit, and then we, and it was great conversation. We really hit it off. And then we decided, you know, that was back in the day for where every minute cost money. Uh-huh. Was it long distance? Long distance, yeah. She yeah. was in Nashville, okay. and I was in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Okay. So gotcha. I don't remember, but I, I remember just unbelievably huge phone bills because it was a lot of money. So expensive. So we talked, and then we decided we would start writing letters. Mm-hmm. And we wrote letters back and forth. And some of them were fun letters. Like she sent me a pretend Rorschach test and said, what is this? And then I would send her <laughs> one and we'd, we'd ask questions, you'd fill in the blanks, and we'd send them back. And they, we still have them in a little box. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, that's so cool. But we got to know each other that way. We talked a little bit more. And finally, I, I said, I think it's time for me to come visit. So I flew to Nashville for a blind date mm. for a weekend. And it was just nuts. I mean. It's big stakes, but yeah. Yeah. I and mean, what we, else? We met and we had this amazing weekend. We went to Loveless Cafe mm. and we um, went to Davis Kid Bookstore and mm. we showed each other our favorite books, a lot mm. of children's books. Then we went to see the opening or it, the First run of When Harry Met Sally, oh, which wow. is an amazing that, that first date movie. That's cool first first movie. Ever. I know because then I go, she laughed at that. I like that, you know. And yeah. she played it the same. And it was just this great weekend. And then, um, uh, so that was our. F- yeah. So did you move or did you stay long no, distance? No. Well, long we time? stayed long long distance. Mm-hmm. We, you know. But uh, you know, we probably I, we need to go back and think. But I think it's probably we had. Probably 10 weekend dates mm-hmm. um, before we got engaged. <laughs> but a weekend date is like a bunch of dates. Yeah. You know, she would come to Winston-Salem. I would come here. And so a year after we met, we got married. I was 36. She was 32 in our first marriages. I That's so that. romantic. It is Isn't very it? romantic. Oh, there's yes. even more romantic parts of it, too. But anyway. Yeah. 
It's a, that is a great story. I'm I so glad I asked. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode with Al as much as I did. What I took away from this entire conversation was really the importance of making space to fully acknowledge, feel, and walk through our sorrow and grief. For so long in my life, I ran from my grief. I was sure I could outpace the feelings, afraid that if I let it in, it would actually envelop me. One of the greatest shifts in my understanding of grief came from taking Onsite's Emotional Health Masterclass, The Ways We Grieve. This short class provided me a new frame through which I could view my grief. It helped me normalize my experiences, and it gave me insight as to how we all grieve, that it's a natural biological process, and it invited me into a place of hope, peace, and wisdom. If you, like me, have a complicated relationship with grief— I hope this interview provides you with some hope and perspective and understanding. And if you want to take your learning to the next level, I really do encourage you to check out The Ways We Grieve. You can learn more at onsiteworkshops.com slash grief. And don't forget to use the code podcast for 15% off your purchase. Now let's get back to this incredible conversation. You know, I feel like today's love stories are not quite as romantic generally mm-hmm. that you know people yeah. swipe yes. I guess maybe and they yes. meet somebody and yeah. being single what do you do you see a lot of single people and do you have any advice for how to spend the season well of mm. someone that is being single gosh you're right things have changed a lot but I was 36 when I got married and so I was single for a long time yeah and you know, I think probably going back to our earlier conversation of mm-hmm. authenticity is the answer. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the, like, to go, there's some really great things about being single. There's some really mm-hmm. difficult things about single. And I would say that about marriage, too. Yeah. yeah. But I think I would, from my experience, that's very antiquated. <laughs> now, yeah. writing letters with your hand. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all could do it stuff. I know yes. we could. I mean, in fact, I, I would, I would, you know, <laughs> this is probably like the old guy gives dating advice. <laughs> I love it though. That's <laughs> why I'm leaning in. I would asking. probably, you know, encourage mm-hmm. do something different. Like, yeah. and it might be a letter, um, not an email. It might be a letter, but also what, what happened with us was we were forced into creativity yeah. Um, because we wanted to get to know each other, but we couldn't just couldn't spend a lot phone. of time with yeah. each other. And so um, well, it felt like a lot of our letters had to do with, I want to know this about you. And it could be serious. It could be fun. Mm-hmm. It seemed like you engaged like your entire self in yes. the process yeah. where yeah. you're like your mind and you're like, is this like yeah. a partner that can spar with me and yes. your creativity and your love for adventure and yeah and 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 to me it's it's like i think accessibility to extreme communication mm. those might not be the right words but it's part of the problem because right. you just assume you know people if you see their facebook or you assume you know people and and i think the getting to know someone over time and taking the time to do mm-hmm. that, I think everything's rushed up, whether it's physical relations or whatever. But to allow yourself to slow down and truly get to know someone and also deal with the loneliness. Yeah. yeah. That, that's just true. 
Because there's something about being single, and the older you get, people assume there's something wrong. Mm. And that's that's cruel. Because mm-hmm. there's a chance that there is. And, yeah. you know, maybe we're pushing people away or whatever. I was. But also, it's just difficult yeah. after college, you know, yeah, it's if just you don't hard. do certain scenes. Difficult. And I'd say give yourself a lot of grace. Mm, that's um, good. If you're single and listening to this, give yourself a lot of grace to explore and to know yourself and even use that time to dig into your own life. Yeah, I mean, y'all are all are about that at onsite to yeah. to take a deeper look. Had I taken a deeper look in my life earlier, it might have been different. I'm glad yeah. it turned out like it did. Yeah, you know, but it might have been different. Yeah, and so I would just encourage people on this side of marriage to do as much work as you can. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I but I even I think about like the timing of that of well what had happened if you had I think. It was all destined, right? Like if you had done that work earlier and jumped into a different relationship, then you wouldn't mm-hmm. have had what you had with Nita. And yeah. I don't know. I just think sometimes we don't pay attention to the timing of things. Of yeah. Maybe it's nothing to do with you and it's strictly to do with the timing of when yeah. something's going to happen. Whatever big thing we're waiting on, whatever kind of season we're in waiting. Yeah. I think about that sometimes when I get impatient. I'm like, what are the millions of other factors that have to play into this yeah. thing to happen? And that's so true because yeah. I, as I look back at our thing, it was pretty crazy yeah. how we met, mm-hmm. especially because I don't like blind dates. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure you even agreed to it. <laughs> but also, the, the, you're right, the timing yeah. was right because mm-hmm. maybe a year before, I would have given it three months and broken up, mm-hmm. you know, because that's my history. And But in fact, when he told her about me, he said, I'm not sure. <laughs> if he's ready for this, but I'd give it a shot. <laughs> I'm like, well, thank you. But I guess I was, and yeah, she yeah. was too. I love that. Yeah. What is it like in your home with two therapists? I'm really fascinated by that. It's so funny. People think that with two therapists, well, you just kind of know what to do. But it's like being in a home with two doctors. Their kids are sick, and so are they. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And so it's <laughs> like we're two therapists, but we're also, uh, you know, the reality is that when you get married, it's two self-centered people trying to get to know another person. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> in reality. And so it's not a lot different, really. I think maybe no. we know some stuff, but you don't put into practice. Yeah. Well, you try really hard to put it into practice, but, you know, we just you just got your stuff. So yeah. it would be fairly unrecognizable as a therapeutic <laughs> home. <laughs> <laughs> and our kids, our you know, our sons, they're they're twenty six and twenty nine. You know, they're, we we would do things as parents that we know knew as soon as we did it were wrong, and we would ask them, okay. Sometimes we joke and say, "Here's twenty dollars in your future therapy jar," but often we we'd say, "So I, I guess you're going to talk about this with your therapist one day." Yes. And one day when they got older, they said, "Did y'all really?" Were y'all really worried about it? We go, well, kind of. But anyway, I just hope your therapist is kind to us. So um, th- there's probably some things that yeah. we might see, but we're just yeah. folks that need to get better and need to learn how to love better. Yes, yeah. I love that. <laughs> what drew your interest into therapy? Going to it. 
Yeah. <laughs> that was the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it was the time in my life where I was stuck and I had secrets and things I didn't know. Yeah. And I I was I grew up in this wonderful home that was happy and happy and happy. Mm. My dad was 19 years old on Omaha Beach on D-Day. Mm. And he saw such mm. horrors that when he got back from war, he didn't want any more sorrows, any okay. more sadness. It was just so much. And my mother grew up in a home with an alcoholic father. And so they met each other, and they were just very positive people mm-hmm. and happy people. And their commitment was, we're going to be happy. Mm-hmm. And we were, mm. comma. There were things that happened to me. Mm-hmm. that I didn't ever speak of because it would interrupt the happiness. Mm. Yeah. And so if you asked me back then how I was doing, yeah. if I was really depressed, I'd go, fine. And you? And you? Um, and I knew it wasn't true, but I did not know the language of anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would be a person that would apologize if I started crying. Mm. Yeah. Which now I go, now I, I go, when somebody apologizes, going, for what? Yeah, you know? for what? being human. <clears throat> but I think, I think it just mm. built up so much. And I remember the horrible shame I felt. I knew, I knew when I went to college that I, that something was wrong. That I needed to talk to somebody. Yeah. But it, but to speak of truth of what's going on inside was just shameful. Yeah. And I, I did wouldn't have named it that at the time, but I remember the first time I, I spoke honestly of something. That and and the person didn't run away. Yeah. Surprise. Surprise. In fact, they embraced what I said. Mm. And and I just remember the doors opening to something then. And I went on with life for a little while and decided and continued counseling and decided, I think I'd like to do this. Yeah. Which is it's so funny. Everybody I know that's a counselor. I had a great experience in counseling. Yeah. <laughs> and you go. Yeah. And and so which is kind of comforting to clients because you go, Yeah, I was messed up and yeah. mm-hmm. here we are. Let's it's go. For me. Yeah. yeah. So that that was it. I, I went to counseling and found great benefit for it. And then mm. was kind of, you know, as as life continued on, thought I want to do this. I'm struck by how brave that was yeah. to realize, like, I need something different. Like, I need a different language, a different way of being, and to find that support for yourself. Uh, well, it was, thank you. Uh, I, at the time, it didn't feel brave. It felt desperate. It yeah. felt like I'd said so many times when I broke up with someone, she's just not the right one, mm. which was an amazing cover and very arrogant, <laughs> but I finally didn't believe myself. Mm. And that's the time where I went, it's not true. Yeah. It's not true. It's not that I didn't find the right one. It's that something in me is running. Mm. And I just was lonely enough yeah. that I needed, I wanted to break through that. So thank yeah. you. Mm. <laughs> I think yeah. some of the most things we do in desperation are brave. Yeah. yeah. You know, like yeah. It, you want to do stuff, it's brave you know? to admit yeah. your desperation. But what it does, it helps me. I don't do a lot of counseling anymore, mm-hmm. but just to understand when someone comes in, mm-hmm. what they're about to say is so frightening to them. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Often, especially the first time if they've never been before. Mm-hmm. And just to know that and to try to set a table that they can eat where they can eat mm. is because I, I have compassion on that person because yeah. I was that person. It was just, I mean, I probably looked down the whole time and looked up and never made eye contact. But I, I, wanted, I wanted to be that person too. Yeah. yeah, that's really good. I forget sometimes. You know, because yeah. once you've done the work for a while, yeah. oh, you're yeah. like, oh, there's so many benefits and it's so normal. And, yeah. But I, I remember so vividly when I was doing my Living Center program like five and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. My I had my friend Eve drop me off that Mackenzie knows. She is like the chattiest, most bubbly person ever. Mm-hmm. And as we got closer and closer on the country road and she kept talking, I was like, finally, like, I need you to just be quiet because I'm going to throw up. <laughs> like, I yeah. can't, no more noise. That's great. That was brave. Actually. I know. It just was like, I can't, I'm getting really anxious. And so, but I just, yeah. I forget too, that how terrifying that, that felt. To- oh, yeah. mm-hmm. I don't remember how, how many years ago I went to the Living Center program, but and I've been a therapist, not, <laughs> you know, um, but I was like, oh my gosh, because that's, that's not a level yeah. actually, you know, and <laughs> I remember thinking as I was going through it, you know, when we tell what we do for a living, <laughs> I wonder if people are going to go, really? Yeah, you do no. what? <laughs> it appears what? that you've done no work on your life. No. Mm, no. <laughs> but but yeah. it was a very important yeah. thing. Yeah. I really feel like a lot of this conversation, and I'm interested to hear you having you shared of like growing up in a home that's like very happy and mm. I wasn't allowed to express the other parts of that. Mm. And I think what I keep seeing the thread through this conversation is just like embracing the both and. Mm. And you are someone you said like, I actually really like grief. I like to talk about grief. I like mm. to think about it. Mm. And I think you are someone who is acquainted with it. And I think I'm just interested to hear kind of what your journey has been like with that. Um, I think a lot of us in the last couple of years feel exhausted And I read an example in a book just this week about someone saying they were exhausted. And the person said, are you exhausted? Are you tired? And I went, Um, (laughs) and so I think grief has a way of wearing down on us. And a lot of us are, have been walking in grief for a couple of years. So I would just love to hear kind of your relationship with that and how you've gotten. You know, it's interesting. I was, gosh, probably in the nineties, I was teaching at a graduate program Mm -hmm. And my topic that year was psychopathology. What's wrong with you? Yeah. And each week I would cover a different topic. But as I was preparing for the course, I don't remember whether I made this up or I read it, but let's just say I made it up because it makes me sound really smart. But I remember thinking, as I looked at what's wrong with people, whether it's depression, eating disorders, dissociative disorders, anxiety, whatever, it felt like there was a theme Mm. And the theme appeared to me to be unaddressed sorrow. Mm. And so I had this little theme for each class that I talk on different talked about on different subjects. And the theme was the flight from sorrow leads to the loss of hope. Mm. And so mm. each time we began a class, the class finally memorized it, and we'd say it together, the flight from sorrow leads to the loss of hope. And so that became the theme, and I began to look at what's wrong with people. And there's so many things, what, you know, this will be a, a broad sweep that's not always true, but like if, if somebody's struggling with an eating disorder, mm-hmm. how, there's, there's a sorrow that has not been addressed. 
whether it's a relationship with a parent or a father or something, there's a sorrow that's not been addressed. Unless it's chemical, depression, at least for me, was sorrows, things that have happened Mm -hmm. that was not addressed, that was not grieved. Yeah. um, And on and on. So that's kind of where it it started Mm. for me is like understanding that, but also seeing my own life as, as I addressed my own tragedies and my Mm -hmm. own traumas and grieved them, not just address them, but grieve them. Yeah. There was comfort in grief. Mm. You know, it's it's interesting in the Beatitudes, it's blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because they'll be comforted. Mm -hmm. And my assumption is, and if they don't, they won't. Mm. Um, And because, you know, it it feels like when, when I was counseling, almost inevitably in the first few sessions, I would ask somebody, um, what did you learn about how to, how to grieve and how to be sad in your family of origin? What was their opinion of sorrow? And it's amazing. I don't think I've ever talked with anybody that said we were taught to embrace it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I asked a group of people, probably 100 people in a conference one time, mm-hmm. give me one word or or a phrase that would describe how your family taught you to grieve if they did or how they approached it. And it was fascinating. Like pull your bootstraps up and keep going. Yeah. I'll give you something to cry about. Um, Don't cry. Don't cry. It's going to be better. Mm -hmm. And I I joke about my home going, um, dearest people in the world, but if I came with something, um, it was almost if they could have sung the same theme song from Annie, the song, come on, yeah. the chorus yes. would come out. And I, I get it. I understand why. And I have great compassion for them. Yeah. But that's what I, but, but it's amazing how many different phrases like that I mm-hmm. heard from people. And to, um, people will say, why do we have to go back there? Yeah. Why do I have to look? I'm sure you've heard about that all the I time. I've that before. Yeah. 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 I, I, me too. Because like, it's over. It's yeah. over. And my answer is because you won't be comforted unless yeah. you do. And and you would comfort a child if mm. they're they're weeping yeah. and they're crying. And you need comfort because you've never received it from what happened to you mm. from that loss. And to me, you know, I'm I'm I, I didn't bring the one I was sort of brought today. Um, there's a poem by Mary Oliver, mm. and everybody who's listening to this, go look it up. You can just Google it. It'll show up. It's called Love Sorrow. Mm. And she, sorrow in her poem is a little girl. Mm. And, and he's, she says, you must love her and take care of her. Um, she's awkward. She's uh, difficult. But don't leave her alone. Be with her. And it's just a beautiful poem that talks mm. about embracing it. And it ends with something like, and you will find that in the, as the two of you go walking into the morning light, she begins to grow. She begins to change. Mm. So good. And it's, so, it's so to me, there's something. I used to be afraid of sadness. Mm-hmm. I used to apologize for sadness and felt like it was wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, you should not be sad. We should go to Disney World. <laughs> yeah. I, 
I never, I think lately I've been thinking more and more about the connection with grief Mm -hmm. and sorrow Mm -hmm. to hope, like Mm -hmm. you mentioned in your first statement. Repeat that again. The flight from sorrow Sorrow. leads to the loss of hope. Just in my own experience, I think like one of the things I've had to reconcile was like grieving, sort of getting married in my 20s and having kids and, you know, at this sort of timeline that I just... I had imagined as a kid and expected for myself. Mm -hmm. But I think it wasn't until I was able to like really own that that wasn't my story and grieve it, that it couldn't open up the possibility of what do I want my life to look like now? And like part of that journey to motherhood, you know, was opened up because I was willing to sit in Mm -hmm. the, what I should have probably done at 28 when I thought I'd get married in my mind, you know, but it took me a long time to really own like, Hey, this isn't going to be my story. What do I want my story to be? Yeah. And I just think that that grief hope connection is so tied. It's so tied and so real. So real. Um, It's it's like at some level, when I, I I think about hope, one day I'm going to write an article or a book titled this, so you can't steal it. No. Um, <laughs> Trademarked here. <laughs> yeah, no. No, it's because I, I was giving a talk on Hope one time, mm-hmm. and I, I titled it Hope and the Company It Keeps. Mm. And the reality is you cannot hope unless you wait because you're, you're waiting for something that you hope for. And you cannot hope unless your heart aches. Because mm-hmm. if you hope for a child and you can't get pregnant— your heart aches and you wait. Yeah. But you have, and you have to stay alive to those two things in order to hope. Mm-hmm. And so an ache is grief. It's something I don't have. It's, and so it is, to me, it's intimately connected and almost necessary yeah. to grieve before you can hope. Where did you give that talk? I don't know. <laughs> I... This came flashing back to me, and I started crying. I attended a church at the very beginning when I first moved to Nashville. I went to Journey Church, and I was in the hardest season of my life. I think that was it. And I have the chills. Huh? I, do. I, I, I yeah. I do too. Um, I was in the hardest season of my life, and you talked about hope. That's it. And I was in a season where I felt like there is no hope. Like, I don't have any of it. Mm. And, like, in that season, I listened to it over and over— And I was just like sitting here in this whole conversation and I've been like, just really comforted by your voice. And I've been like, I'm like just sitting like, what is this? Like, I've always wanted to tell you that Um, and to tell you that you walked my husband and I through a really, really hard season where we didn't have a lot of hope. Wow. And yeah. And I just like kept holding on to like the weight in that. And we were in a lot of waiting and, Mm. you know, so anyway, thank you. And that is the weirdest thing. That's very wild. And for those who, um, because this is not a uh, taped a video, <laughs> uh, you if you were here, you would see some brimming eyes uh, <laughs> amongst us all. And that yeah. moves me very deeply, but that was where I probably Yeah, I think it was at Journey Church. Wow. And I just, wow. I wrote, like my husband and I looked at each other and we have just been fascinated by you since because it ah. just met us in a really particular wow. season. And I think a lot of my story is not letting things matter. And I think I felt a lot of shame about even feeling hopeless because the narrative in my family was like, think of something good. There's so many good things yeah. and there are. And 
this is a really hopeless season where I'm waiting and I ache all yeah. the time. Wow. So. Wow. <laughs> That's wild. That's so, so wild. Mm. Two things. Um, Mackenzie and I both with small children always yes. like, how do we help our children yeah. live with the sorrow that mm-hmm. they feel? Yeah. Any advice to struggling you know, parents? You like know, us? It, it's so interesting. Um, the example I would use is when what I remember, I'm not sure if it's historical or emotional memory, <laughs> um, but I was probably 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. And my father and I were taking our dog to the vet to get put to sleep. Mm. Boy and his dog, come on, right? Yeah. And I remember leaving her there, coming back and getting into the car. And ready to implode. And what I remember is something to the tune of, let's go get another dog. Mm. Mm. And even as I say it now, it's hard to swallow physically right now. Well, but I swallowed it. Mm-hmm. And we got another dog and who can cry with a puppy? Mm-hmm. So fast forward many, many years to when my boys were probably 13 and 10. Our little dog that they had never known life without had a little stroke in the backyard. We, the boys and I, Nita was uh, not well. And so we took him to the emergency vet and um, we're back with the vet. And they took him off to get an x-ray or something. And the doctor came back and said, um, your dog just died. Mm. And I'm standing there with my boys getting a little for clamp right now and going, whatever I do right now could change their lives. And I put, (laughs) I put my arms out and we wrapped, there was a waiting room full of people as emergency vet. We wrapped our arms around each other and wailed Mm -hmm. loudly and long. Mm. The, the, the vet was very awkward about that. <laughs> yeah. He was like, whatever, went loudly and long, just wailed and wailed. And, um, and they put him in a little box, mm-hmm. a little casket, and we took him out through the waiting room, and the whole waiting room was sobbing. <laughs> we got home, and we wailed again with my wife. Uh, we um, opened his little box, and we did a little Egyptian thing. We put his little things in there with him for the journey. You know, dog biscuits and, and yeah, bones yeah. and collars, and took him out in the backyard. Mm-hmm. It was raining. We buried the boys. We buried him. We came back in and just drew the drapes. It was Friday, and we laid around all weekend. And then we told Thatcher stories. And about the time he ate half the birthday cake, while everybody was outside, you know, whatever, you know, all that. Yeah. Wrote poems. I called our priest uh, at the Episcopal Church, and I said, "We're coming hot." <laughs> when we come up to the, and he prayed for us, mm. prayed for the boys, and and they they learned to grieve. Yeah, it was beautiful. And to me, they're just moments. You know, the ham, hamsters always die, mm-hmm. and they're moments to 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 kind of say, "I welcome this," and we we should cry, and we should we can cry together, and because intuitively, children want to grieve. Yeah, I really believe it. Their mm-hmm. their souls want to say what's going on inside, um, and we can grieve with them. Yeah, 
And can I ask what that did for the 13-year-old you, being able to, like, kind of rewrite what that looked like? Well, obviously. Yes. (laughs) When I was talking about it. But, no, it it, it went, okay, we can can do this. And I I felt some healing, too, just, like, as well. This is a great Mm -hmm. question. I I think I did feel some incredible release, but Mm -hmm. also just relief that they have a, a chance to grieve differently. Yeah. And I did. Mm. Yeah. It's a really beautiful gift you gave your boys. Yeah. By mm. the way, my, my father, um, he learned to grieve mm. uh, after he was 70 when we went back to Normandy. Mm. And he, he learned to grieve again and began to be open about his sorrows and mm. his grief. And, but his sorrow was the fact that he had to kill, he killed so many people. Because he's a little machine gunner, and that's what you do. And he grieved the most at the Ger- German cemetery mm. where he had killed them. Mm. And so the rest of his life, he yeah. he embraced it in a different way. So there's hope. Yeah. You know, he was in his 70s, and he had another 20 years to live. Mm. Yeah. It's a beautiful story. I ask you to bring a poem, and I'm wondering if you would be willing. Every time I've seen you speak, you've shared a poem, and I love it. Well, I'm an obedient person, so I did bring a poem. And it's interesting how this fits with what we're talking about. It's where there's two things that happen, uh, grief, happiness, sorrow, love, back and forth. And it can be very quick. It's not like it doesn't need to be a period of this. And this is a poem that speaks to that back and forth. The name, uh, the poet's name is Al, I'm going to spell it Z-O-L-Y-N-A-S, Zolness. And it's called Under Ideal Conditions. Say, in the flattest part of North Dakota, on a starless, moonless night, no breath of wind, a man could light a candle and then walk away. Every now and then he could turn and see the candle burning. Seventeen miles later, provided conditions remained ideal. He could still see the flame. Somewhere between the 17th and 18th mile, he would lose the light. If he were walking backwards, he would know the exact moment when he lost the flame. He could step forward and find it again, back and forth, dark to light, light to dark. What's the place where the light disappears, where the light reappears? Don't tell me about photons and eyeballs, reflection and refraction. Don't tell me about 186,000 miles per second in the theory of relativity. All I know is that the place where the light appears and disappears, that's the place where we live. Mm. That's really good. Thank you. And so pertinent to this conversation. Wasn't it? Yes. Amazing how things like that work. I love it. Thank (laughs) you so much, Al. Thanks for asking. I feel like this whole conversation I have like... Usually I talk a lot more, but I've just been listening and absorbing, (laughs) and it's been really uh, special and great to just to get to know you, and I feel like it's going to be such a gift for our listeners. Well, I I want to tell you all that you're a very warm company Mm. and inviting, Mm. and often things like this are sometimes awkward. You haven't met people, and you're sitting and talking about stuff, but this feels like I have two friends. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a a real privilege and honor to be Mm. pursued in this way it's very kind thank you that's good 
Let's do it again soon. Yes. Let's do. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.